Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I am joined again by my trusty co-host, Joe748, and by Pro AP BJA Forum Moderator Nichols. How are you doing, Joe748? Doing great. Long time no see. (laughs) How are you doing, Nichols? I'm doing all right. Awesome. Well, we've got questions around travel and AP life and some of those things that are less of the practical, how do you do this, and more about the how do you go about this lifestyle? And then we've got kind of like uh, some random YouTube questions that I think will be kind of fun if we get get to those. So let's jump right into it. Our first question is tips on making a place a local. So this person said, I believe this was on the Blackjack Apprenticeship YouTube community tab. Someone said, another AP moved to Vegas wants to get help making a place a local. Like, I think what they mean is a place they can come back to regularly. Nichols, you you had some locals for quite a while early on in your career. Any advice from your tenure on what you would do to get some longevity out of a local shop? First, if they mention Vegas, I'm not 100% sure this is going to go over as well as they think it might. But in my experience, I think the biggest thing is just being someone that the staff there like to be around or at the very least get along with and don't dislike. And you don't have to be the life of the party to do that. You can just be someone who actively listens to what other people are saying, you know, who takes an interest in other people. Um, In fact, I think uh, like this isn't an AP book per se, but I think a lot of the soft skills translate the old Carnegie book, um, how to win friends and influence people is something I think just about any card counter would benefit from reading um, just because it's really helpful with those soft skills at the table and with casino staff. That's mostly what I did is just be someone who's pleasant to be around. I mean, there's a few little, um, I guess you could call it camouflage type things you could do, but like you don't want to go too crazy with camouflage because it gets expensive. And if you're going to do it, know what it costs you. Like you say all the time, use the, use the betting software and figure this out. But like you can start with, provided your bankroll can handle this, you can start with like a little bit tighter spread to get them used to you and get them used to like the checks play call and all of that. And then once they're comfortable with you and you're sort of just part of the environment now, then you can start progressing to, okay, well, how low can I take my minimum bet? Can I take it down to 15 and they're okay? Okay, can I take it down to five and they're okay with it? And that's the sort of stuff I've used. I don't do anything crazy like actually changing my playing decisions for cover or like the bet spread too. Like it's more about the bottom of the spread than the top of the spread. You know, like I'll still bet, say it's a, 300 max game i'll still like do my two by 300 but it's a matter of like the bottom of the spread like okay if i start out with two by 50 how do they react to that and then okay they don't mind that what if it was two by 25 okay what if it was one by 25 and then if they're really really comfortable okay well what about one spot of five the two by 300 now you're talking Joe seven four eight like yeah. I, well, I was already jumping to a one dollar table. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Joe's trying to get the one dollar table reserved. <laughs> um, yeah, regarding Vegas, I mean, 
I mean, it can be done. It's just going to look way different than you probably think it's going to look. If you're trying to be local in Vegas, it's going to be a ton of moving around, a ton of walking, a ton of just a lot of really short. I mean, I know, I mean, Tommy still plays in Vegas. Like he talks about to this day, like regularly. So it can be done. It's just, you got to curb your expectations about how many hours you're going to get in per week and what it's going to look like to get those hours in. Vegas is tough. One other thing just in general is, is I would limit wins. If it's, if it's a local, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to have a $5,000 win. If you're betting, like, let's say you're doing that two, two by 300 top bet. You know, if you're up two grand, probably time to just call it a night. Cause that sticks with, I know the most heat I got, there's a casino that I beat for 150,000 over the course of a couple of years. And the most heat I got was when I had a $30,000 night. Yeah, that stood out to them. I was able to, you know, win a lot of money over a long time, but they noticed the big wins and and uh, you know, that place was exceptional. They like incredibly low heat, but still heat if you get to to a certain point. Um we have a members only podcast uh with Scott Chow and it's members only because he said he doesn't want it to be public, but it's it's really good about how he's gone about this. If you're serious about, you know, trying to make some locals last, uh, he has an incredibly smart approach to it. So we can move on from there. But I would check that out if you have a membership or I would get a membership for that if you're serious about making locals last a long time. Next question. How should I deal with tribal casinos? Where I live, there's only tribal casinos around me. And we get this a lot. And so I'll just open it up to you guys. Just play them the exact same way I play any other place. I mean, you don't, it's like technically, technically different, but in practical reality of actually playing, it's not going to be very different. I mean, the only times I've had casinos act negatively against me or even do illegal things against me have all been at state run places. So. Yeah, and I've never had any issue with tribals. Um, I think Joe's probably played more tribals than I have, but I mean, I haven't had any issues either. I mean, like the only thing I could think of is like I might be a little more respectful of a back offer trespass just because I know I don't really have any recourse if they go over the top, but I've never had them escalate anything to like a crazy level either. So, yeah, back in the day, this is like, in the mid 2000s, there were some tribals that would like detain and backroom anyone on our team that went and played there. But I haven't heard anything like that in the last 10 years um, that I can think of, though I have heard of that at state run casinos. The amount of money you'll you'll generate if you went to tribals over the course of your career would way outlast one or two incidents if there was some off chance of something happening. You'd leave so much money on the table if you never played tribals. Yep. All right. How do you manage your sleep schedule? Do you just sleep whenever play permits? I had a 20 hour session. I had to take advantage of them letting me play. Nichols, you ever have a 20 hour session? Not on blackjack. Um, I have had a video poker session that because of the details of it um, required us to play until the Royal hit. It was a progressive. Um, and I was on that for 48 hours straight. Oh my gosh. And I don't recommend doing that. I don't recommend 20 hour blackjack sessions either. It's really rough. Um, I'm not a big fan of marathons that last that long. I, like probably the longest blackjack session I've done is like 13 hours. And I don't even recommend that as far as, um, 
sleep goes, like, I mean, if you're playing for a living, you do kind of have to schedule sleep around play a little bit, but if it's not a time sensitive thing, then like, just go to bed when you're tired and wake up whenever you wake up. You know, if you absolutely have to play at a certain time or for a certain amount of time, then it gets a little tougher, but I don't know anymore. I try to prioritize getting enough sleep above pretty much anything else when I'm on the road. I think even if it would be worth say an extra hundred bucks to play another hour, if I'm already, you know, drowsy and want to go to bed at that point in time, I'm just going to go to bed, you know, and, and a lack of sleep can also make it so that next hour that maybe is worth a hundred dollars in a vacuum um, isn't actually worth a hundred dollars because it hinders your play, you know, whether that's video poker, blackjack or something else. Um, it's tough to stay sharp if you haven't gotten enough sleep. Joe for eight. Have you ever been up 48 hours? I just looked at my records to see the longest session I've done. And I've only done at max, like a 15 hour session. I've never done those like create. I think it, when you hit those like double digit sessions, it, you have to make up that lack of sleep later in the week sometimes. So then you're losing out on that. Like so I've noticed when I've been up for too long, I just, you know, the next couple of days I end up like sleeping a lot longer to catch up. So I don't recommend doing, I mean, I personally don't do sessions more than like 10 hours nowadays because I just can tell I'm just slowing down. I feel the same way. I played a 14 hour day once and it was still had breaks in there for meals and stuff. If someone's playing 20 hours in a day, I dare you to take a test, do a test out after those 20 hours and see how well you actually are playing and how slow you're actually playing. I just think that it's really diminishing returns. As far as sleep in general, I agree with Nichols. Like it is important. There's new studies that are showing sleep health is like they're they're using it as one of the big indicators of like overall health, like uh high blood pressure and stuff like that. It is important. Now, of course, there there's blackjack trips where, hey, on, on these four days, I'm gonna be getting in the, you know, five or six hours a night range or whatever, four or five hours a night range for a short period of time. But I really think, you know, like why do we do this? Uh we do this because it's worth it. And you got to really consider what you're doing to your body if if it's like regularly not getting much sleep. Maybe it's weird hours, you know, like if I'm on a trip, yeah, maybe I'm playing till two or 4 a.m., but I still want to try to get, you know, I don't want to be playing week in and week out on too little sleep and and please don't pull 20 hour sessions. That's my advice, you know, uh, take it or leave it. But if you're going to pull a 20 hour session, do a test out after 20 hours and see how well you actually perform. All right. Geography wise in the U S what are the differences like the South versus Pacific Northwest Vegas or Cali versus new England area? Okay. So we're not getting into specifics, uh, about specific casinos, but, uh, what would you guys say is the sweatiest region in the country? In my experience, it's been Las Vegas, but I haven't really spent a lot of time East of the Mississippi. So I can't really make a comparison to like half of the casinos in the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, then Joe 748, what would you say is the sweatiest region in the country? Yeah. I mean, like Vegas, Reno, Atlantic City, Tunica sometimes for some people, kind of these old school towns that have been around for a while, which makes sense why they'd be the sweatiest. I'd say for cash outs at the cage, I mean, no contest is the South for being sweaty about ID at the cage. 
that's by far like the and also like the midwest is sweaty as far as uh id scanners in the front of the casinos you don't really see those on the west coast at all anywhere really but uh, we get this question a lot like at boot camps and stuff and it's people always want to know like where's the best regions to play and it's never it's usually never like a a solid region from year to year or whatever it's always just one place and that one place changes to it seems like seasons or years like there'll be one really tolerant place one year and then the next year it changes to some other place or you know like yeah totally it's it's a moving target i i get frustrated you know i think in the south they're very quick to flyer you vegas yeah the back offs come quick but there's just a million casinos to go to it's frustrating where there's literally no casino you can walk into because you've been flyered and i've had that more in the south i mean i guess i've had that in vegas too there's so many factors it, it just also depends on your history too like i i remember like playing in iowa was like one of the worst experiences for me i just couldn't get any time and there was so much driving in between and they were just flying left and right but like yoshi for example started in that region so he was able to get a lot of hours which i wasn't so it, it just depends on your history too it does uh kind of a follow-up question it says what's the best resource to find good blackjack games any places to avoid well yeah nichols what's your advice for finding good blackjack games and where to avoid there's two main options um there's blackjack apprenticeship if with an apprentice or elite level membership you have access to casino 411 um, and it's updated pretty regularly with conditions and if you're a member and you help update the conditions that'll make it even better and then bj21.com has current blackjack news and i'll say this about those sort of databases like casino 411 and cbjn is um like people aren't going to tell you which place is the very best to play, but it's a catalog of games and um, an idea of the rule set. And that's where you can go to look for a really good situation. So like, I guess the recommendation is one, get a catalog of where there are games and two, go check them out yourself because Sometimes something doesn't look so great on paper, but then once you're there, you realize it's a lot better than it was on paper. Yeah. And networking does come into play. If I know a pro AP that has played a region, I could say, I would probably ask, hey, is there anywhere I should absolutely not play? Because they're not going to want to tell you if they've got some great game they can still play, but they might say, dude, don't play x casino like it's just not even worth walking into or they're going to flyer you or whatever and that's actually as valuable as the opposite of knowing where to play networking is important but yeah i mean we over 90 percent of casino 411 has been updated in the last couple of months like we we work hard to keep it updated cbjn man uh yeah i was using that thing 20 years ago it still is pretty good so those are both options but there's a lot to what joe said that one person, I had a, a paid phone call er, earlier today, and I was telling him the story about, Joe, you played a place for whatever it was, a week straight or something, until the one person that knew anything got back from vacation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the manager, the head manager who was in charge of backing people off was away on vacation all week. So, so there is some luck to whether a place is going to be sweaty or not, just who's working, who you know, what shift is it and some of that luck, but uh, you can try to make as informed of a decision as possible by doing your research. 
Okay. Uh, next question. What happens if you get backed off and they ask for ID and you give a fake one? Would that be considered fraud or something? Is anyone here a lawyer? That is an interesting question. I mean, if you show a police officer, I mean, I'm sure that's definitely fraud no matter no matter what. If it's just a casino employee and you flash your brother's ID or something, I don't know. I don't know either, but I, I wouldn't do it personally. I do know, and I've heard this on Gambling with an Edge, like that, and I've heard from AP lawyers like Bob Loeb, like there are people getting prosecuted for using other people's IDs in casinos, and I, I just wouldn't want to get anywhere close to it. I don't know the legality of using someone else's player's card. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I have done it before, but I haven't in the last like ten years because I don't know. It's just like I don't need a lawsuit. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think anything like this where it's a gray area, especially with ID, like you have another alternative, which is just refuse to show them ID. There's no reason to mess around in that gray area when you can just say, um, no, I don't have it or no, I'm not showing it to you either one. You can just leave without showing ID. It's not the end of the world. Let's keep moving. This is, I thought this was kind of an interesting one. He said, having put in so many hours at the table, do you all feel like you've seen every hand played? to every outcome, as if there's no new combination of cards that you haven't basically seen before at, at some point. I guess I'll, I'll start. Like the dealer making a six card 21, yeah, not going to shock me. Um, or whatever, a five card 21, not going to shock me. Though there are certain deviations that I've never done or like splitting tens against a two. I've done it twice in my career. I think you need a true nine. And is that right? Two, four, six, no, maybe you need a true 10, uh, four, five, six, eight, 10. Yeah. I've done it twice. So definitely not every combination and that's okay. You know, because it's not that every hand has to reach every outcome. You just have to get enough statistical significance to overcome variance, but any, anything come to mind for you, for either of you? I ca- yeah. I kind of just feel like I've seen all the combinations of dealer hand uh, uh you're also like emotionally bracing yourself a lot of times for it to go wrong like when i split tens and i'm doubling my 10 whatever like it's it's just i'm just trying to protect myself emotionally so i'm just like oh the dealer's gonna make their hand and when they don't i'm like oh well that's great cool but the thing i feel like i haven't seen every combination of is like what the casino was gonna do when or why they do what they do <laughs> that is an endless guess of what's gonna happen yeah, so thinking about like the literal card combinations and what order they're in, like in multi-deck games, I think there's just too many combinations that there's no way um, you'll ever see all of them. Um, I think I might be there with single deck games, though, um, just because one, I've played a lot of single deck, and two, there's fewer possible combinations because you only have 52 cards. You can't repeat any one card more than four times. And most of that's um, just because... Like earlier when we were talking about video poker, I had a video blackjack thing that was similar to that, where it's like you're playing a thousand hands an hour, um, you'll get there a lot quicker than a hundred hands per hour is all. Um, so like I've seen like, you know, like two, 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 ace, ace, six, ace, you know, things like that. Just because of that, though, like I, I wouldn't have seen enough hands for that if it was just live blackjack play. That's interesting with with the amount of single deck. You you literally could see ace 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 two or something you know yeah that's that's really interesting but again it really doesn't 
matter as long as you're getting to, you know, enough statistical significance to be positive. All right, we've got a few more here. After seeing my results from full-time advantage play, my best friend has decided he wants to invest in my bankroll. He has a high-paying job and a lot of cash on hand. My question, what is a typical profit-loss split for this type of arrangement? If the bankroll grows 10%, do we split the growth 50-50? Have either of you like taken on an investor? I haven't. Not like a direct, like just me and an investor. Um, Stan Podolak and I did a team for about a year and we weren't the only two investors, but like all of the investors were players. So we didn't have any outside investments. So I'm going to answer this and then you guys tell me what you think, but I actually don't recommend this. It's a very different thing than a bunch of players that are all investing. A bunch of players all investing like uh, Nichols and Stan Podolock did. That's actually really advantageous because everyone can leverage each other's bankroll and everyone can leverage each other's hours. But if I'm playing, let's say that I've got 10K and I'm playing, and then someone's like, hey, I'll give you another 10K. Well, sure, I can bet twice as much and generate double the EV, let's say. But now I have to hand that person a cut. They're not contributing any hours. And so when you're betting twice as much, you're getting more heat, you're having more variance, and not to make twice as much, but to make a little bit more because you're going to have to hand a lot of those profits to the other person. Now, whatever the split is, I would say is whatever motivates both parties, whatever both people are happy with. But my advice to whoever asked this question is if you don't need your friend's money, don't do it. Because also people that aren't playing, we had this with the church team. We had at some points, a million dollar bankroll. And we have these people that are super happy when we're winning. And when, when we're losing, they just don't get it. They're, they're just freaking out. And it's so stressful. And I, I like to say I've never lost a night's sleep of losing my own money, but I've lost lots of night's sleep losing friends and family's money. It can strain relationships, all that stuff. But again, it's not just straining the relationship to make twice as much. It's straining a relationship to, sure, maybe you make twice as much and then you have to hand them half of that extra money. It's twice as much to only yourself make maybe 50% more. So I, I really don't recommend it. But as far as what a structure would look like if you did this is whatever motivates both parties. How badly do you need the money and how badly do they want to invest in it? That's going to, you just got to figure that out. I like the team, multiple players all throwing their money in together if everybody trusts each other. Because again, you're making money when the other people are playing and you're making money off of their bankroll and vice versa. Yeah. The only investment that I've been offered is the old when you meet someone for the first time, they find out what you do and they say, if I give you 2000, you turn it into 20. Exactly. Everyone's looking for some some easy money. What's the famous quote uh, JC note would say? It's a, a hard way to make easy money. <laughs> All right. So to finish this off, I've got half a dozen questions that Joe, you found these. Do you want to ask him? Yeah. Questions from YouTube. All right. Everyone always talks about not cashing out your chips right away after a back off. Is there any good reason to cash out chips after a back off? So not not avoiding the cage. Is there any advantage to just going to the cage, showing ID, getting the chips and getting out of there versus not? I think if it's like a really remote area and you're never planning on returning and you really just need to get out of there and get home, then, you know, in that case, it's probably fine to just cash out and, oh, well, they got a good picture of me, or maybe even you show ID then. I mean, depending on how you feel about giving them your identity, 
But like, other than that, like there's really no point. Just you can leave and come back another day in most circumstances. Yeah. Those remote places, like I want my money. Uh, now, am I going to say, no, I won't give ID very possibly. But then again, I know I'm in every database anyway. So if it's getting my money or not giving ID, I'll, I'll get the money. Yeah. Another consideration is like how much cash you have on hand for that trip. So let's say it's not a super remote place and there's three casinos in this town. You also have to think about like, well, if I brought 20 grand with me and 15 grand of it is in chips, I'm only going to have 5,000 to play at the next place. So I'm going to have to decide, can I get through a session with five grand or not? Like how much? So you have to weigh that out too. Yeah. I've been on a trip where we didn't have enough money to keep playing because we had a whole bunch of chips from another casino. And that was just so stupid. Okay. Next question. Why don't the casinos use 600 decks of cards instead of six? Why not just keep adding more and more and more? I want to see that. A 600 deck (laughs) uh, shoe. (laughs) It'd be a long time to wait through a negative. (laughs) I mean, I suppose they went from one to two to four to six to eight. Why haven't they gone to 10 or 12 decks? The invention of the CSM, just a more efficient way to do it than adding more and more paper and decks and longer discard trays. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is they basically already have infinite decks with the continuous shufflers. Which begs the follow up, like, why haven't those taken over? And I think it's because one, they have to rent them and they're expensive and they do break. I mean, even just non-continuous shuffle machines. I was I was playing, I'm not going to say where, but a renowned, fancy Las Vegas Strip Casino and their shuffle machine kept malfunctioning. And so they went to a hand shuffle and this is, you know, like those things are a pain. They have to rent every one of them. You ever see a pit, an empty pit with all these machines they're renting. The other is, you know, like serious players don't really like CSMs, but even the decks of cards are expensive. I contacted Bicycle or B or whoever the the parent company is um, out of curiosity to get some like custom blackjack apprenticeship cards made. Those things are expensive. Uh, even when you're buying them in huge bulk, every deck is expensive. And so, yeah, a 12 deck shoe is going to, because they have to replace the cards every every day or, or however often it is, like those costs do add up. And, and casinos are, you know, when they're looking at the number of tables they have, they're considering those costs. That's a good point about the cost of the cards. Um, I remember one of the places that was near me when I was like first starting out actually made their game better because they went from six decks to two decks because they thought they were spending too much money on the cards. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. Uh, Why doesn't Colin play anymore? Is it just because he's selling an online course? This question has come up a lot from YouTube people in general. Yeah, I actually stopped playing before I was selling an online course. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, play, I played full-time for a couple of years. Then I ran a team for about five years uh, because flying around playing wasn't wasn't my goal long-term. And even running the team, I still went on a few trips a year, um, maybe played 100 hours a year when I was running a team. But, you know, I started a family early on and it, gosh, I've done road trips with four kids in the minivan and my wife. And it's not really the life... I wanted and card counting was always a means to an end for me. And now like running an online business is a way better fit with my family. And for me, for a lot of years, I made a lot less running an online business than playing uh, blackjack or running teams. It's grown to a point where, where, yeah, I'm, I'm like 
very, very happy with it, but it wasn't, uh, uh, I didn't start doing it for the money, but, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I think when people just learn that this is a thing, they always have this question that, that it's like, you know, well, if you can make so much, like, how come you're not just doing this all the time? Like it's way harder than you think to just, you know, making like 300, 400 grand a year or something card counting is not as easy as just like, you know, walking into a place and you're just there every day for <laughs> yeah of course like a lot of things it's it's not as black and white as people want to make it people want to either think that you can't make money with card counting or that you could just make money like tons of money year after year and and neither are true like yes you can make you can make a million dollars counting cards like Joseph for eight's done it you know but uh can you do that year in and year out and not hate life no no you can't <laughs> like you know like tommy highland's the only guy i know that that's still professionally playing after decades is it because it can't be done no but most people want to move on to something else at some point uh why haven't you ever tried to play professional poker have either of you guys Nichols? poker was actually my original interest before blackjack but it turns out blackjack's just one a lot easier to learn you know, there's an exact right move and an exact wrong move that you're never caught in this in between where you're kind of questioning, okay, did I play bad or did I run bad in blackjack? You know, you just ran bad. And then the other part of it is just that poker is a much slower moving game, at least live poker is. And so blackjack's more valuable because of that. You know, I mean, I mean, you could, I mean, if you had a big enough bankroll and you could play like some big, um, 1000 2000 blind game of course the poker would be more valuable but um the reality is um the competition gets stiffer at those at higher stakes too so like you have to be even better to beat those games so the types of games i would be capable of beating like a one two game with no rake because i'm not that good i wouldn't be able to overcome the rake um you know that might be worth like 10 bucks an hour it's not as valuable and it's there's a lot more to learn and a lot more uncertainty, I think would be the reason I've never gone that deep into it. We were getting into card counting during the poker boom and everybody on my original team also played poker, but for myself, you know, I'm much more mathematical. Like when you get into no limit, it's a lot more art than science. I like to limit games. And back then, like I kept results of all my poker play and I'm, I'm up, but exactly what Nichols said I was up, but then if you move up to higher stakes, the competition's higher and you don't know if you're better than the competition until you've played enough to either be like, oh, dang, I can't beat these limits or, okay, yes, I can. Since then, limit has just been solved. You know, it was solved a long time ago. I think the the other thing is the lifestyle. Pro poker players I know are at poker tables 12 hours a day, you know, five, six, seven days a week. And that's never been like... My interest in advantage play was leveraging my time, like buying my time, you know, so I didn't have to go back to Red Robin or, or, you know, become a teacher where, where I was going to be, you know, at a school 40 hours a week and then lesson plans and grading papers, another 20 hours a week. It was like, oh, I can do this and, and work part-time and make enough to live off of. The goal was never to be in casinos 60 hours a week. What is stopping a casino owner from purchasing a BGA membership to figuring out how to you're beating casinos. Well, it actually says uh, what's stopping a casino owner from purchasing BJA. <laughs> uh, I would say, I would say I am. Uh, I get these cold emails every so often from someone that's like, we have a client interested in purchasing your website. 
And I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll bet you, I'll bet you a million dollars they want to plaster it with online casino ads. And uh, I'm just not interested. But as far as purchasing a membership, I would say two things. One, we do, we do keep an eye on you know some stuff. We've we've blocked IP addresses. I've canceled and refunded based on email address or or, or some of those things. But the bottom line is like, yeah, someone could use a VPN and all that. But really, like a casino owner, <laughs> like what are they going to get? They're going to get a really good card counting training course and a forum of anonymous usernames and a casino database that says, you know, like, I just don't know what they're going to get out of it. Um, I think we've done a good job of keeping it safe. People would say, wouldn't surveillance people buy it? And I remember asking T. Dane, a surveillance expert, and he was like, the casino is not going to reimburse me if I buy a membership. And so I don't care when I'm not at work. I don't care so badly. I'm going to spend my own money buying a membership so that I can stock people on the forum. Could it happen? Sure. But uh, I don't know what what benefit it's going to give. Nichols, you have anything to add? Just that, I mean, card counting's been around for however long since Beat the Dealer came out. Like, they really don't know anything about card counting and wanted to learn. There's a lot of cheaper ways they could do it. Blackjack Apprenticeship is like a really streamlined way to learn and a great way to learn. But like, if they really wanted to know more about card counting, they would have already done it. The other thing is that just with surveillance people, I mean, card counting is not even the number one thing they're looking out for. You know, they're looking out for like dealers stealing from the rack and stuff like that. They're worried about vagrants coming in and harassing slot machine players. You know, it's not their top priority. I think my guess is they're they're wondering like, well, couldn't they find out all the card counters out there? But no, you're going to find you're going to find people's forum handle. Yeah. I mean, unless, you know, everyone decided to throw caution in the wind and use their real name as their username, but... Yeah. And sometimes people sign up with their real name and then we say like, hey, you let's change this. Or someone says too much personal information on the forum and we delete it and say, hey, you don't want to share this. You also put, have to put into perspective, like the dent that the card counter is making on the casino in reality is like nothing. I mean, it, card counting was you know, life-changing for my experience, for me personally, but to a casino, it makes like no difference to them. Sometimes emotionally, they'll react like you're robbing them blind, but the actual profit and loss of the day of the casino, even if you, you walked in there, you won like 30 grand in an hour, another card counter will come along later and lose 29 grand in that same hour and be... Let's say that that's the actual EV. Let's say someone took 30 grand in an hour actual EV. They can make that up in the same amount of time, like on the slot machines. Even some of the smaller casinos at their peak hours can be generating like a few thousand dollars a minute. So, all right. And uh, last question What happens when you are counting cards and then you have to take a huge dump? Yeah, this this sounds like the uh, video poker deuces wild. I'll just tell a quick story. We have a uh, church team member, Mark. <laughs> he had some story that he had like a terrible cold and he took way too much DayQuil. He's at the table and he pooped his pants at the blackjack table. <laughs> um, uh, Joanna, who wrote an awesome story, my favorite story in Tales from the Felt, she said, she's like, oh, I have another story I could tell about a time that I was sick and I chose to throw up in my 
purse rather than leave the table, <laughs> which I thought was pretty, uh, that's, that's dedication. Yeah. If you have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> go to the bathroom. There's always giving me another good count. It's not like that the EV of that shoe is, you know, a thousand dollars. I tend to agree. You can probably just bolt for the restroom. If it's really that good that you can't leave it. I mean, hopefully you're proficient enough. That you can get through the shoe pretty quick. And even if you have to prairie dog it for a minute or so, another option is just, uh, you know, plenty of people wear diapers to the casino so they don't have to leave their lucky slot machine. You can just dipe up. Oh, no. No, the man. Ultimate cover. If, if, if your head's up, tell him to hold hold the table and do what you got to do and get back. Otherwise, like, think of it in terms of EV. What's that shoe worth to you? If, if you're playing a $100 an hour game, is that shoe worth 25 bucks? Like, would you pay 25 bucks to not poop your pants? I hope so. Mm. <laughs> well, Joe, are you looking at your list? You got another question or... I'm still debating whether or not I would leave the table at this point. <laughs> I would like to say I wouldn't. I, I would leave, but I, I guess it depends on how high the count is and everything. And yeah, oh my gosh. what the heat's looking like and everything. Oh, man. I would pay a pretty <laughs> high fee to not have to well, drive I, home. I know of at least one card counter that puts in his records the number of times he's trapped himself during the year. Wow. So it's a regular thing. Okay, that has not been a part of my blackjack career. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you, Nichols. Thank you, Just748. If you want to learn how to beat blackjack, if you want to get access to betting software, casino database, everything else we got, check out blackjackapprenticeship.com. If you need to go to the bathroom, pause this podcast. Or actually, hey, you can keep listening from the bathroom. If you're at the blackjack table, take a break. Take care of yourself and uh, we'll see you guys next time.